Um, I, I truly didn't know what to expect in terms of attendance. I sort of had in mind that it would be a very, very small gathering of exceptionally nerdy people. Um, and it, and it, tur it turns out that um, some of you perhaps aren't as nerdy as I am. So just, just really quickly, um, um, and you may have even, uh, if, if this was unfamiliar to you, I obviously um, uh, began assuming some familiarity with Van Til and transcendental arguments and such like that. Um, but just if you didn't catch this in the first session, um, the whole idea of a transcendental argument is, is that if we uh, assume intelligibility, right? And this is, this is where this shows up practically in apologetics, right? When I sit down in Starbucks with an unbeliever, there are certain things that are necessarily the case if we can even have the conversation, right? Um, there are certain um, uh, uh, assumptions that we're both making that make that conversation be what we both believe it is. So I, I think a, a good way to illustrate this, um, as a Christian, when I sit down in Starbucks with an unbeliever and we're talking about the Christian faith, do I think that conversation matters? And the answer is what? Yeah. Obviously, yes. And on a Christian worldview, am I justified in reaching the conclusion that that conversation matters? And the answer is yes, right? Let's, let's assume the guy I'm talking to in, in Starbucks is a, is a absolute, hardcore, naturalist, materialist atheist, right? Um, one of the, and, and I'm, I, this isn't really our, our focus here, but just kind of on-ramping for the second session. Um, when I'm trying, when I'm having a conversation with an unbeliever, very often my first obligation is to either figure out what his worldview is or honestly, in most cases, help him build it. <laughs> um, because most people are, um, live their lives uh, in perpetual distraction so that they never have to think about these things, right? Um, and so there are a couple, I mean, there are many, many Im uh, important worldview questions. For, uh, for, for, for me, one of the ones I like is, or to start off with worldview, whether I ask it directly or not, are questions of, of protology and eschatology. Uh, I've, I've shared this with a couple of audiences. Protology just means beginnings, um, but a fair warning, uh, if you type protology into Microsoft Word, it will autocorrect it to proctology. <laughs> um, and, 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 and I did make the observation that protology has to do with beginnings and proctology with ends. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. Anyway, um, see, now I've got your attention. A the after lunch session's rough, and so I had to do something here. Um, every worldview has some um, uh, thought about origins and, 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 and eschatology, right? We think of eschatology like dispensational timelines. What is the eschatology of naturalist materialism? Yeah, it's, it's maximum entropy, right? There will come a day in which all the stars burn out and everything is cold and dark and empty, right? Here's the question. In that day, does our conversation at Starbucks matter? 
and it's really, really hard to see how it does, right? That, that if naturalist, naturalist materialism is true, when I sit down with an unbeliever and have a conversation, that conversation is what it seems to be on a believing worldview, but on his own worldview, it is very difficult for him to make sense of our even having the conversation, right? That his continuing to talk is itself a repudiation of his own worldview, right? On my worldview, I believe that certain things are true and certain things are false and that I have an ethical and moral obligation to believe what is true and to reject what is false. I have an obligation to follow arguments that, that if I find myself trapped in some sort of logical contradiction to, to either uh, explain it or to relinquish a certain belief, there is a, this John Frame is really good on this sort of stuff with his um, uh, triperspectivalism, which I don't know that I buy entirely, but there's times where it's helpful, um, where he talks about looking at epistemology, which is our, our study of knowledge, through the lens of ethics, right? That there are, and, and, and if I were to give you like one word that I think is one of the most important words in actual apologetics conversation, it's the word ought, right? That, that, so, that we cannot function without an idea that there are certain things we ought and ought not do, right? And that, that applies even to epistemology, right? And so I'm sitting down, I'm having a discussion, and, and, and uh, the, uh, the unbeliever, the, 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 you know, the cogent, uh, hardcore rationalist, pardon me, unbeliever that I'm talking to, we both believe that there are um, rational obligations laid on us. Now, in a Christian worldview, do I have an explanation for rational obligations? I do. Where do they come from on his worldview? Right? This is the nature of a transcendental argument, is, is that the, the power and potency of a transcendental argument is that I am saying to someone who disagrees with Christianity that the very precondition of our having the conversation that you and I both know that we're having is the truth of Christian theism. So you might reject the truth of Christianity, but your continuing to engage in the debate presupposes Christianity. Right? This is why Van Til uses that line, anti-theism presupposes theism. Right. So that's the idea of a transcendental argument, especially as it relates to Christian apologetics. So transcendental arguments broadly are, are that idea of, of let's start with the notion that we have intelligible experience and ask what must be so that would enable that to be possible. Right? That's what a transcendental argument is. Um, I want to begin our second session here. I started by quoting from Van Til. Here I'm going to quote from Blaise Pascal. Um, I become increasingly, this is a warning for those uh, that get heartburn from these things, I've been increasingly drawn to the rhetorical potency of certain kinds of paradoxical statements, right? And, and, and here I think paradox is important um, because um, we are finite, right? Um, so one of the things I, I say pastorally in our church is that mystery is not for us theologically a last resort, but a first principle. What I mean by that is this. 
It is, it is and, and obviously there is a wrong way of understanding that, right? The wrong way of understanding that is just like abject subjective mysticism right is is because god is transcendent because god is infinite and we are finite therefore no one can really know anything about god therefore anything goes right that's garbage <laughs> right because god has revealed himself but we have to say as a matter of first principle god is infinite and i am finite and therefore at every point god transcends my understanding Right? What, I, what God has revealed about himself is true and I can know it, but I can never comprehend God. Right? That's, an important, that's important in apologetics. Um, and, and, and what that leads to for us then are paradoxes. There are things that we must accept as true that we cannot always see the rational resolution of certain uh, tensions in our theology, right? And that, and that the reality is that most false teaching and most heresies result from seeing biblical tensions and refusing to hang on to them and, and pulling back one of the two levers. So I think paradoxes are, are useful. Here's a wonderful paradox from, from Blaise Pascal. <laughs> submission, so here he means submission to authority, that, that acknowledgement of God's authority. Submission is the use of reason in which consists true Christianity. Right? You, you could see Kant just curling his toes at that one. Right? Because Kant wants to say that the proper use of reason is that it never submits to anything. Then he quotes here, this is now nested quotation, uh, Pascal citing Augustine. Reason would never submit if it did not judge that there are some occasions in which it ought to submit. <laughs> it is then right for it to submit when it judges that it ought to submit. And then back to Pascal. And I love this, and this might be, I'm pondering this one. Probably shouldn't roll that out publicly while I'm pondering. This might be my favorite summary of what Van Til is doing in Transcendental Arguments. Line from Pascal. There is nothing so conformable to reason as this disavowal of reason. There is nothing so conformable to reason as this disavowal of reason. I'm, I hopefully I'll remember to come back to that at the end and explain why I think that's so important. But let's, let's um, kind of pick up where we left off just before lunch. My uh, basic two claims um, before lunch is that the transcendental argument that is we, we know and love from Van Til is not intrinsically a safeguard against autonomy and when rooted in autonomy is subject to the very same kind of failures that we find in the traditional theistic proofs right that was the uh, thesis this morning so what should we do we could 
Um, one uh, option available to us is to seek to tamp down the more radical Vantillian claims for uniqueness, offering the transcendental argument as yet another leaky bucket in the stack of leaky buckets, right? The uh, cumulative case uh, idea is, yeah, I know this isn't a slam dunk, but if we just kind of add all of our leaky arguments together, we've got a pretty compelling case. And maybe the transcendental argument is just another leaky bucket. Or perhaps there's another way to understand the transcendental argument that retains both its power and uniqueness. So let me illustrate the problem, at least as I see it at this point. So I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk to an unbeliever. And I, um, that unbeliever, at least in his own estimation, is committed to, in an ultimate sense, autonomy, right? Now, we are laying aside, and I'll, I'll just... I'll gesture in the direction of this can of worms and then leave it up on the shelf. When I'm uh, having conversations with unbelievers, I want to break unbelievers generally down into two categories. The vast majority of people that most of us talk to in evangelistic um, situations are people that when push comes to shove, their ultimate commitment, their ultimate authority is whom? Is themselves, right? Are there people who actually do really have some other source of authority in their lives, right? There are people that are genuinely committed to some other religious system, right? Um, now, the reality is, in our experience, for most of us in most of our context, we're just not encountering many of those, right? And to, to, to pick on an obvious example, um, you, you, you start talking to someone and they say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Roman Catholic, right? And you ask, well, do you believe, and you can ask them any one of like a dozen questions about things that Roman Catholics are dogmatically required to affirm. And odds are they're gonna say what? No, I don't believe that. Oh good, you're a Protestant. Well, let's just figure out what kind, <laughs> right? Um, is, is that when I'm talking to unbelievers, the vast majority of them, and this is why I spend most of my time here, are ultimately committed to autonomy. There are a handful that are genuinely committed to the authority of some prophet or some holy book or some system of teaching. And at that point, it is incumbent upon me as someone who's trying to win them over to understand their worldview on its terms to show how that self-destructs, right? That's what I want to do. I want to, I want to uh, undermine that argument on its own terms. But, but most people, even those who profess allegiance to some other system, push comes to shove, they're committed to autonomy. Does that make sense as a, as a distinction there? All right. So I'm talking to the unbeliever. He is committed to autonomy. Um, and I want to make the case for Christianity to him, right? And I'm going to use a transcendental argument, or I'm going to use, uh, in this case, I'm going to use a transcendental argument, right? I'm, I am trying to find something that he is evidently demonstrating his commitment to, his reliance on, whether it is the meaningfulness of life, the uh, nature of ethical obligations, right? These are things that he's demonstrating he believes that these things are so by engaging with me in conversation, right? And I, I take those things and I use those things as a basis for showing that if those things are so, then Christianity must be true. The problem is the more I lean that way, 
the more structurally my transcendental argument starts sounding like, for instance, a teleological design argument. Right? Here is this place of common ground that you and I have, and I'm going to show you that if you take that and, and run with it logically, it should lead you over to Christianity. Right? The, 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 the idea here is I'm using a transcendental argument and the more I make it into an argument, the more I run the risk of affirming the unbeliever in what? In his autonomy. Right? So I say, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to tell the unbeliever that um, uh, he has certain principles that are actually correct. I want to I cut the rug out from him uh, entirely and show him the only way ever to think about anything rationally at all is on the Christian worldview. And therefore, therefore, because the only way to think rationally is on the Christian worldview and he is not on the Christian worldview, I can't offer him rational arguments at all. And what are we left with now? This is fideism. Right? The idea that there is no rational case that can be made for Christianity, that Christianity involves an, at, at, at best, a rational, at worst, irrational leap of faith. Right? I think it is not surprising, the more I thought about this, that the two accusations that beset Van Til's uh, presuppositionalism is that he's a rationalist and that he's a fideist. <laughs> Um, that's actually funny, um, right? He, he's accused of mutually contradictory sins, right? And the reason is, is that the transcendental argument is kind of a teeter-totter back and forth between these two things. Is a transcendental argument is saying, here's an argument for you that you should be able to see the implications of. Also on your own worldview, you can't see anything. Right? And, and that's what we're, we're wrestling with. All right. Um, yeah, the, the, the catch is that the degree to which a transcendental argument abandons autonomy in a way necessary to be consistent with Van Til and reformed theology, the argument loses its argumentative force. It seems at that point to become a mere assertion of the truth of Christianity. Um, and, and I mean, I've seen examples of this. Um, you know, I know this is something that um, Van Til and certain followers of his have been accused of. I was at a conference um, in, in the last couple of years, and there was a man giving a presentation on apologetics who called himself a Vantillian. And, and I wish I could tell you I'm exaggerating this, but, but really his presentation is, because the unbeliever is, is lost and because we don't give him credence as a rational individual, we present the gospel to him, and what Vantill tells us is if he rejects it, we present it again. This is just fideism. There is no rational case to be made, right? Is, is that, is that the, if, if any um, measure of presenting an argument that the unbeliever would find plausible is, is out of bounds, right? And, and um, I, 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 don't, I can't accept that um, for any number of reasons. Turn to, turn, if you've got a Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians 1. And, and I'm, I'm going to maybe jump ahead 
in my notes that you don't have, so I don't know why I told you that. Um, <laughs> First Corinthians 1. So I don't know if it's, if it's come out yet uh, or not, but the, the, either the last edition of Detroit Journal or the upcoming edition of the Detroit Journal. I reviewed um, one of the, the popular books of the last year, Biblical Critical Theory. Um, if you're a Vantillian, I would recommend you read the book. I think it's a helpful book at a certain level, right? And if you want my full evaluation, read the review. I will say it's the dumbest and most useless book title I've seen on a book in the last hundred years, right? Because if you're into critical theory, and you're drawn to the book because, hey, critical theory, the author's not for what's normally called critical theory. And if you're like, critical theory, you're gonna like miss a book that's probably actually helpful. It's a stupid book title. Um, all right. One of the things for which I will be grateful, I, I trust, I hope, for actually for many years um, uh, from having read that book, is that the author of that book compiles a list at one point, this is early in the book, maybe page 80 to 100, somewhere in that range. He, he compiles a list in the book of, of different uh, um, uh, writers through church history up to the present day who have different ways of articulating that Christianity um, uh, both, how do I want to say this without stealing my own thunder, both um, has, has elements in it that um, um, answer to things unbelievers want, but also um, strike back against things that unbelievers want. That, that there's this, there's this uh, tension. And one of those phrases is by a guy named, I think it's Daniel Strange. I think the book is called Plugged In. It's a modern book. And, and it's this phrase, and, and uh, this one is, is just kind of uh, embedding itself in my brain. It's called Subversive Fulfillment. Subversive fulfillment. And, and the more I think about this phrase, the more valuable I find it to be. Let's look at 1 Corinthians. I want you to hold that thought. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians. Familiar passage, but I think a really, really important passage. Pick up at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Does that verse have any implications for apologetics? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I start every class I teach on apologetics now with this, this passage. I think this is incredibly, incredibly important. And, and so let me walk you through an idea here. 
According to Paul, what is it that Jews seek? Sign. What does that mean, that Jews seek signs? Signs of what? What, what does it mean when the, when the Pharisees repeatedly come to Jesus and say, good master, we would see a sign. What, a sign of what? Yeah, it, particularly, I think the idea is they are seeking signs of a mighty conquering Messiah, right? That's what they're looking for. Greeks seek wisdom. That's fairly straightforward. Now, here's where we need to pause and, and get something really crucial. Is Jesus the mighty conquering Messiah that the Jews seek? And the answer ultimately is yes. Right? Read Revelation. Right? That's really important. Is Jesus wisdom? Yes. If this were a, you know, church marketing sort of class, Paul has just completed his demographic survey of his uh, target audience. And he knows the Jews seek a mighty conquering Messiah. The Greeks seek wisdom. Turns out Jesus checks both of those boxes. Paul's sermons now write themselves. What does Paul preach? He preaches Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. This is Paul decontextualizing the gospel. Right? What is it that my audience wants? Here, really important. Jesus truly is that thing. Right? It's not that Paul is reluctant to preach it because it's false. He, Jesus truly is the thing they're seeking. And Paul says, and therefore, I'm going to preach him as the opposite of that. I'm going to preach Christ crucified. Weakness and, 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 and um, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. Why does Paul do that? Why would Paul understand what his audience wants to hear, be truly convinced that Jesus is the answer to their, you know, their truly theologically, in some cases, rich, felt need? Jesus truly is the answer to that. And yet he preaches Jesus as the opposite of that. Why would he do that? So the powers of God, right? I mean, that, that language, and, and there's, he says it multiple times, but look at back at verse 17. Back at verse 17, the, the last line before that paragraph we read. For Christ did not send me to, send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. <clears throat> An important idea here. All unbelievers everywhere, by definition, by, just by virtue of being unbelievers, are idolaters. Right? There is something that they prize in their hearts as that which has final and controlling value for them, right? They are idolaters. Far too often, our approach to ministry is to go about asking what idols our neighbors have 
and then showing them the way in which Christ would make them even more efficient in their idolatries. Right? What, what do the Americans seek? Right? We know what the Jews seek, what the Gentiles think. What do, what do the Americans seek? Money. Money. And, and it may need, in some cases it's riches. In a lot of cases it's what? What's it? Well, it could, it could be, but even just within the category of money. Security. Security, stability. I don't want to have to worry about money. I want, can I, can I, can I poke? Financial peace? Right? The unbeliever wants stability and um, love at home. Right? He wants these things, right? And for many unbelievers, if we start asking, these things are his idols, right? And so we come along and we say, I, I have good news for you. Jesus loves your idol as much as you do. Right? <clears throat> now, here's a question, right? This is, uh, this is, Sort of a trick question. I always preface my trick questions by announcing they're trick questions. My church appreciates that. Does Jesus promise financial bounty to his followers? Ultimately, yes, right? Problem with the prosperity gospel is that they get their eschatology wrong, right? Does that make sense? That's actually really important. It's an, it's an over-realized eschatology because Jesus does promise health, wealth, and prosperity. Does he promise it now? No, he doesn't. Does Jesus promise family stability if you come to Jesus? No. What does Jesus say? Your enemies, a man's enemies will be what? Members of his own household. Now, th this, is, this is difficult, and there is not a clean answer to this. Is it often the case, right, in the, in, in, when the fall happened, right, um, the connection between righteousness and blessing in God's universe was, sev or was um, I'm sorry, um, frayed but not severed? Does that, that make sense to use that language? That, that what we want to see, what would be wonderful, is to live in a universe where there is an unbroken link between faithfulness and blessing and between unfaithfulness and curse. Right? That, that would make things a lot simpler. We don't see that. We also don't see that link severed, right? I've said to our church before, I think if that, that connection were severed entirely, it would almost be easier. If, if every time I did righteousness, I suffered for it. I may not love that, but at least I'd know when I'm on the right path. Right? Does that make sense? It's this frayed connection between them that is, that is so Ecclesiastes, right? Where it feels almost random. Um, and, and so it is the case that if I'm talking to an unbeliever and these are his loves, it is the case very often if you will follow biblical wisdom in your finances and, and, and biblical order for your home, many times, maybe most times, things will turn out better. For, but no, I can't promise that. I can't promise that because God doesn't promise that. Right? 
<clears throat> this is, right, now I'm going to uh, bring this back. This is the subversive fulfillment idea, right? The unbeliever is an idolater about his family. When I offer the gospel to him, should I offer it to him as a subversion of his desire or the fulfillment of it? And the answer is yes. Do you, do you see the importance of that, right? It is proper to offer it as both. It is a, it is a fulfillment, right? The, the, does Jesus promise us a family? He does, right? And that is a fulfillment of this, of this um, unbeliever's image-bearing, still legitimate desire for family that he's turned into an idol. Does that desire have a fulfillment in Christ? It does, right? That's fulfillment. Is there also a subversion of his idolatry of it? Yes, there is, right? Is, is, that, is that, you know, as I'm talking to him, it, it, it may be, maybe not even, you know, it's, it's going to depend on the person and the circumstances and whatever, whether this is part of my presentation of the gospel or it's part of uh, my discipling of a person. But, but there are going to be times in which I need to say, listen, you've turned your family into an idol. Right? Where Christ is actually subverting how it is that you love your family while still offering the full fulfillment of this. I am convinced, I don't remember who I stole this from. Um, uh, someone made the observation, you'll hear someone, if you've pastored, you'll, you'll hear someone in the church come up to you, Pastor, I read this book this week, it's life-changing. And the guy said, hang on, let's just wait and see. <laughs> um, that subversive fulfillment idea, and, and I'm actually putting it to some uses. I don't know that Strange does, and, and, or, or is it Christian, Christensen in uh, Biblical Critical Theory? I'm putting it to uses I don't necessarily see in those guys. Because I think that idea captures something deeply biblical. Right? Now, what does any of that have to do with apologetics? <clears throat> the unbeliever wants reason. Is he right to want reason? What do I have to do with the unbeliever's desire for rationality and reason? I have to do what to it? I have to show that Christ subverts and fulfills it. Does that make sense? Do you see how that's what, what a transcendental argument is doing? Right? It is not fideism because Christ is the fulfillment of rationality. But it's not rationalism because Christ will not serve the unbeliever's idol of rationality. And that's the tension, right? And it's, it's a tension. I think it's a paradox. I think it's unavoidable. This is, this is the Pascal idea that I, I, I began with this afternoon, right? That... Um, there is nothing so conformable to reason as this disavowal of reason. 
Does that make a little more sense now, right? It is a subversive fulfillment. I am not going to the unbeliever and telling him that Christianity is an abandonment of reason, a, a, a pure subversion of reason. But I also must take care not to let the unbeliever's idol of rationality now be in the driver's seat so that Christ is bowing to the unbeliever's idol. There's so many different places to go, I'm trying to figure out which way, which way to go next. <clears throat> um, that, that, that tension that, that we experience here, right, where the unbeliever is, is uh, rational, right? I, I am, I am um, how do I want to say this? I'm sorry. Um, What we're wrestling with here is the unbeliever's um, rationality is that kind of now common ground um, idea. Um, and wherever I have, uh, wherever I make common ground with the unbeliever uh, inadvertently or unexaminedly, I am, I am to that degree running the risk of, of um, reinforcing his autonomy an illustration of this, right? So I, I've had the privilege now of a couple times teaching a class at, at Central Seminary in their Doctor of Ministry program um, that, that uh, Kevin Bowder asked me to, to put together. And what we do in this class is we just read uh, apologists from scripture and the early church fathers up to the present day. Right? And the, the, the lens through which I want us to read all of those um, apologists through history is this. Virtually every apologist looks at the unbelievers of his day, his era, his culture, and looks for ways uh, in which they embrace something that um, should, rightly understood, draw them toward Christ, right? Um, and what's interesting is um, where we find that common ground, where we find that thing, that hook that we could uh, present Christ to them is going to generally be the point at which we risk in some way reshaping the message to make that common ground, right? So here's my sort of archetype example of this. In, in a seminary environment, if I were to ask you what title, what, um, uh, um, I don't know, honorific, do we ascribe to Schleiermacher as a, as a theologian? He is, he is, you know, shorthand. Schleiermacher, we call him the father of, of theological liberalism, right? Um, the first time I taught the class, I actually assigned Schleiermacher's most important work for us to read through as a class, right? It's one of these things, um, I don't know if you're supposed to do this, but occasionally I assign books uh, for a class just because I hadn't read them yet and I wanted to. <laughs> and now it forces me to, right? Um, 
that is the worst book I've ever read in my life. It's awful and, and almost impenetrable and in and, 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 and trying to, what, what Schleiermacher is doing, so, so if you're not familiar with this, uh, Schleiermacher is a, is a German theologian um, eh, around the same time as Kant, and he writes this book called On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers, right? Um, and, and so he is writing, and he makes this very clear, he's writing to the German educated class because the English are too practical minded to get it, and the French are, are, are ridiculous. And you can just like, oh, Germans are racist. Um, uh, turns out that might be some foreshadowing. Um, so, so Schleiermacher is writing this book. He makes it clear it's only the Germans that can get what he's saying. Uh, maybe that's why I didn't get it. Um, so, so, so he is writing this book, and he's writing to people who, because of the Enlightenment, are, are just going to pitch Christianity altogether. And, and Schleiermacher's uh, um, uh, approach is, no, 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 not so fast. You don't need to pitch Christianity altogether um, because there is a, a brilliant kernel of Christianity surrounded by all of these other dogmatic beliefs that really aren't essential to Christianity, like, you know, the deity of Christ and stuff, right? Um, this feeling of dependence on the infinite or something along those lines. And, and so with, with, with reason, we look back at Schleiermacher as sort of the father of liberalism, as a guy who uh, is, is going to um, eliminate the doctrine of Christianity um, and, and reshape it in a way that's, that's palatable. One of the most important things that you can understand if you think about Schleiermacher so when we, in a conservative seminary like this, when we think of Schleiermacher, we think of him as an enemy and an opponent of the faith. Schleiermacher thought of himself as an apologist. Does that make sense? Right? Schleiermacher does not see himself as trying to destroy Christianity. He is trying to do what? He's trying to save it. D does that make sense? Right? He's trying to save Christianity by looking at the, the people to whom he is seeking to minister and trying to find common ground with them in a way in which Christ would fulfill what it is they're looking for. And once you get that, you'll understand why apologetics is dangerous. Right? And it's tremendously easy for us to see the ways in which other people at different times in different places in different contexts that way they might risk compromising the faith to reach people where they are we tend to be by contrast pretty blind to the ways we do it ourselves because the way we do it is obviously good <laughs> right um, i don't know who said this first but uh, I, I, I do think it's brilliant and has, uh, far more, uh, or has to do with far more than apologetics that uh, we tend to judge uh, uh, other people by their actions and ourselves by our intentions, right? <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of skip ahead to, to maybe some conclusions here. I, I am not going to be able here, as we begin to draw this to a close, to say 
So if you just reconstruct the transcendental argument this way, now you won't have any problems, right? That, that um, I am grateful for philosophers and apolog apologists who labor to make cogent and uh, uh, sound arguments for Christianity. And, and I'll just kind of, uh, for some of you, remind, remind you, for others who maybe, maybe have less familiarity with presuppositionalism, we are not opposed to arguments and evidences. Right? That, that's an enormous, and, and one of the things I, I say when I, I teach my class is, our classes on apologetics, is if I'm standing in the hypothetical apologetics Starbucks, and on the one side of me is, is John Frame or Greg Bonson even sharing the gospel with a guy. And on the other side of me is, is William Lane Craig sharing the gospel with, with, with another guy. At, at any given point in the conversation, I might not be able to discern who's, which apologist uh, endorses which school of apologetics, right? Am I willing to appeal to archeological evidence as a presuppositionalist? Yes. Am I willing to appeal to design and to teleology, to, to purpose, um, to reason, to um, the resurrection? Am I willing to appeal to all of these things? Can I have discussions about all these things as a presuppositionalist? I can, right? Um, and the reason that I can, uh, let, me, let me boil it down this way. I don't know that Van Til ever said it this way. Almost every formulated argument for Christianity, whether it's the cosmological argument or the teleological argument or the transcendental argument or whatever, begins with the assumption the unbeliever will grant X. D does that make sense, right? So the unbeliever grants that there is design. Um, and, and one of the things I, I think is very important for us to do as Christians, as Christian leaders, pastors, as apologists, is to scrutinize the arguments that we make like we would if we didn't believe them, right? Um, you, you know this, I'll just kind of illustrate it this way. There are times when you sit down to read a book that you know when you open the cover I'm not gonna like this book, right? Like I'm reading this book because this book is an articulation of a view with which I disagree, right? How do we tend, what is our, what is our disposition as we begin reading those books? We're on guard, right? We're scrutinizing, right? We're, we're looking, where are the holes in the argument? Where, you know, oh, he cited that script. That doesn't mean that, right? Where, you know, there's, uh, there's authors who put Bible references in their books and we never look them up because we figure they're probably using the text rightly. And then there's authors that when they cite scripture, we look up every verse because we figure they're probably misusing that one, right? Does that make sense? There are other books, right? So we've got this, the kind of book that we scrutinize. There are other books that we, we sit down to read and we sort of relax in reading because this is an author who's gonna tell me something that I probably already agree with, right? I, I can let my guard down. I generally, human nature here, I generally don't um, read books with which I agree with heavy scrutiny. Make sense? 
The problem is, <clears throat> when we're going to go talk to an unbeliever, we often bring to the discussion arguments and evidence and, and, and tactics that when we've read them, they seem obviously true to us because what? Because we already agree with them, right? We've not scrutinized these things at all. We've not thought of counterarguments, right? Um, and and it's, it's, it's always interesting for me when I get to teach on, like, here's the traditional theistic proofs, and here are counterarguments to them. Um, the amount of, like, especially in an undergrad setting, the, 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 the undergraduates who are scandalized, right? You know, here's the design argument, the argument that, that um, if you just look at the wonder of creation and nature, you should be compelled to believe that, that there is a God who made everything. And I believe it was David Hume, I should look up the exact quote at some time, but I believe it was David Hume who said something like this, this will be a loose paraphrase, that if we took an unbiased look at the world as we see it, we would come to the conclusion that this is an early attempt of a relatively incompetent creator. Now, I want you to think about it. Does he have reasons for saying that? Yeah, from our theology, yeah, we have an answer for that. But what we've told him is, hey, I'm laying aside my Christian convictions here. Just look at the world around you. Wouldn't you come to the conclusion that there's a creator? And we don't expect him to say, well, he obviously botched it. But is that in some way a neutral response to the evidence? Right? We don't think this way. Right? We don't screw, we're, we're shocked when the unbeliever actually takes us up on our offer to analyze the evidence neutrally. Right? Because, because he sees the, the holes that we're disinclined to see. One of the, the values of a session like this is I never want to go into an encounter thinking my argument does something that it doesn't do. Right? This is, I think, for those of us who've studied Van Til and who've studied presuppositionalism, this is one of the great values of, of going in and knowing I can appeal to history and to archaeology and to design and to purpose and to causality, and I can appeal to all of these things because I know the bearing power of all those arguments. And I don't think they do more than they do. That's, that's important. I'm, I, I, I don't expect to find myself in a situation in which I'm surprised by a retort to an argument where I thought that argument did more than it does and it turns out it doesn't do that. But I don't think over the years we have given adequate scrutiny to transcendental arguments. Right? We think, we've tended to think, that that kind of argument is naturally exempt from those kinds of, of, of objections. So what is a transcendental argument actually doing? <laughs> right? Is it, is it even doing anything? One of the things we have to accept is that the unbeliever, right, now maybe tie this into something I said earlier, is a bundle of inconsistency, right? Um, Van Til uses this uh, 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 theological metaphor. I don't know that I love it. 
um, but because it has some odd implications, um, but I think it's useful as a, as a metaphor. He says, um, as redeemed people, um, we are in Christ new, but not wholly yet renewed, right? However you want to say that, one nature, two nature, right? We can reopen that whole can of worms, right? But there is that with, within us that is of the nature that belongs to Christ, and there remains that in us that is of seemingly the old man, right? Um, that we don't live consistently with our new nature, right? But that, that that is, if we are in Christ, our ultimate and most fundamental commitment is to that new nature, right? Even though we live inconsistently with it. Van Til says you could think of the unbeliever similarly, that his old nature, and this again, this is not, uh, just, just go with this right now. His old nature is what he was in pre-fallen Adam. And his new nature for the unbeliever is what he is in the fall. Right? And what, he, what he's getting at there is the unbeliever is fallen, we could say it this way, but he remains what? An image bearer of God. Right? And, 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 and what we find in, as we talk to individual fallen image bearers is that they're all over the map in how the tension between who they are as image bearers of Christ or Im image bearers of God and who they are in their fallenness, how those things interact, right? Uh, if you haven't read it before, uh, I, would, I would encourage you to read In Frame's Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. He has a section on the nature of the unbeliever's knowledge, right? Does the unbeliever know anything? I don't know the page numbers right off the top of my head, but you can look it up in the index. It's, 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 and he goes through, it's probably like five, six pages long. He goes through various ways of trying to articulate, um, does the unbeliever know or not know, right? One of the ways I, I try to illustrate it is this, based on scripture, right? Trick question. Does the unbeliever know God? And the answer is what? Yes, yes and no right? Depending on what passage you look at, right? Um, Romans 1 tells us that the unbeliever knows God, right? But Paul speaks elsewhere of those who know not God, right? Um, the unbeliever is in this a paradoxical situation of both knowing and not knowing. Um, and, and that's true not only of his knowledge of God, but it's true of all of his knowledge because he is at war in this way between who he is as image bearer and who he is as a fallen person. And, and, and the point, and I think this is kind of the maybe underappreciated genius of Van Til is for that reason, I can never go into a conversation with any particular uh, um, image bearer, fallen image bearer, and know infallibly what truths he's still holding on to. Right. Are we seeing that more and more in our day? Right? The, the nature of the irrationality is increasingly erratic. Right? Things, things that you would um, think would be common ground and obvious and easy starting points, it's just unpredictable where those things are going to be. Right? And so what we're doing with a transcendental argument of any form 
is I'm going to the unbeliever and as I'm talking to him, I'm fishing around for things, for vestiges of expressions of his commitment to being an image bearer of God, right? The reality is very often, even despairing people, do they think life ought to be meaningful? Yeah, they do, right? Um, people who are, uh, and, and again, this is almost a tired example at this point, but people who say there is no truth or truth is relative, how many of them actually believe that? None, right? Even in the assertion of it, right? And so what I'm constantly doing is I'm fishing around for those things that, what, that, that they are either willingly or unwillingly demonstrating their continued allegiance to something that can only be true on a Christian worldview, right? And I'm trying to bring the implications of that out, uh, of, of that out to them, that listen, uh, as I've talked to you and I've gotten to know what you think the world actually is, if it's the way you say it is, this can't be the case. Right? And yet over here, it makes sense, right? That if you are willing to, and this is, this is where uh, Van Til constantly and rightly brings the question back to the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ. You cannot have what you want because you insist on being Lord. But if you will repent of that, you will get a better kind of what you want, right? <laughs> I, I am, I am sub what you want is warped by, by who you are, but there's a better kind of what you want that you get if, you're, if you will reject autonomy and submit to Jesus Christ, right? And, the, and it will just show up in different ways, but that, that's the nature, that's the, how the transcendental argument sort of works. It isn't, and I, and, and I think we make a mistake to think of the transcendental argument as a major premise, minor premise conclusion that can just hang on nothing. Um, if I could say it this way, it's more of a strategy of argumentation than it is a argument. 